You're welcome to take your Bibles and open it to the book of Genesis this afternoon. Genesis chapter 3. Today we're doing something a bit different than what we normally do. Normally we like to take one book of the Bible and uh, look, look through the whole book verse by verse. And um, they say you should do expository preaching, now and then do topical preaching and then repent. And go back to <laughs> expository preaching where you take the text and make that the main point of the sermon. But for, for occasions like these where we are celebrating the birth of Christ, sermons like these are very appropriate where we trace and look at a, a Christmas service, a sermon about the birth or the incarnation of Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to trace from Genesis this long-awaited longing for the Messiah. And that's the title of the sermon, Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. But before we read the verse together, or several verses along, I want you to think about the following thing with me. If there is a common human experience, it is the experience of sustained disappointment. You hope in something, and that something disappoints you. Let me just list a few things that you might, you might have experienced yourself. Think about money. It's a good example. Money will buy me happiness, and yet it just doesn't. You hope marriage will satisfy you. And again, like I like to say, you're married for a week and you realize, oh wait, it doesn't satisfy me. Many disappointments happen in marriage. You hope your work or career or studies or success would bring you fulfillment and you find that there are just too many things that just keep frustrating you to keep you from finding just full satisfaction and joy in what you do for a living. You hope in politicians and I think with the new year to come and an election coming up, this might be a hope all too real for many of us. Although, yet, they, I want to say they are better and worse politicians, yet they cannot give us what we want. Lasting peace, lasting joy and lasting peace. You even hope in yourself. You set up New Year's resolutions. You decide, I'm going to change. I'm going to do better. I'm going to stop being like this or that. And you are your own biggest disappointment. You fail so frequently that you are tired of trying to try and do better. This is our common human experience. And there's a sense in which the storyline of the Bible is one of sustained disappointment and failure. From the very beginning, our first parent, our first father, Adam, failed in a perfect environment. In paradise, he failed. That's, that's astonishing. He had everything going for him, and yet he failed. He sinned. And, and being sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, we are born into failure. We are born in sin. And I want to invite you to trace this disappointment with me before we look to the one who can never disappoint us. You can guess who that is, but I'm waiting. Genesis 3 verse 15, read that with me. This is the first word the Lord spoke, has spoken to the serpent after the fall, and he gives this promise. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What grace is this that God already at the first fall, he already gives this hope and the promise that someone will come who will destroy the work of the devil, who will crush the head of the serpent. He will undo what Adam did and do what Adam failed to do. But before that day come, came, 
the very first disappointment is as early as Genesis chapter 4. Read verse 1 and 2 with me. Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Remember, what's the promise? Is that from the seed of the woman will come someone who will destroy the work of the devil. Now Eve has two sons. Which one of them is going to crush the head of the serpent? Which one of them is going to save us? What does she find instead? The first murder. Cain murdering his own brother. Far from being the seed that is to save us, the one kills the other one. Fast forwarding to Israel in Egypt, they are there, found themselves in Egypt, slaves for 400 years by violent oppression um, by Pharaoh. It seems that God has forgotten his promises, his people, and his promised seed that's going to deliver them. But then God sends Moses, chooses a man, protects a man, delivers and uses Moses to deliver his people out of slavery. This man talks to God face to face. Surely here is the man that's going to crush the head of the serpent and be our savior, right? And going to enter the promised land with God's people. No, instead, that man sins and he doesn't even enter the promised land. Israel is now to look for somebody else. What a disappointment. But this Moses gave this promise in Deuteronomy 18. So turn over to Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly. When you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord. Verse 17, and the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. So now the people are not just waiting for the seed. They're also waiting for the prophet. So the seed will be the prophet that will come, and to him we must listen. Okay, so let's put the Moses aside. What about the priests? Surely someone from the priests might come and be this deliverer. Let's look at the first priest, Aaron. It doesn't take long for Aaron to make an idol because Moses is taking too long on the mountain. He makes a golden calf, and, and with dramatic irony, when he was confronted with his son, he says, I don't know what happened. I put this gold in, and out came this calf. Like, how did that happen? Being a son of Adam, right? The woman you gave me, Lord. It's, it, it, was, it was them, not me. And two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, when they offered up strange or unauthorized fire, died before the Lord. So not, not Aaron, not his sons. We're looking for somebody else. Fast forwarding after the time of the judges, 1 Samuel chapter 2. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35. The Lord promises he will raise up a faithful priest. So 1 Samuel chapter 2. This is now spoken to Samuel or to Eli. A prophet was sent to Eli to reject him and his priesthood because of his unfaithfulness. In 1 Samuel 2, verse 35, the Lord says this. He says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And this priest was Samuel. 
God raised up Samuel to be this faithful priest. So maybe, just maybe, he might be that man. Unfortunately, the sacrifices of a priest, think about what the priest had to do. They had to sacrifice offerings, and, but they had to do it every year, over and over again, because it just never completed the worshiper. It was never fully complete to satisfy the, the wrath of God for the sins of the people in the past, in the present, and the future. They had to do it again. And there's this nasty habit of priests to die. Can you believe it? Every time the priest just dies and they have to find another priest to do the work of a priest. And what happened to Samuel and his sons? Even though Samuel was a faithful priest, what happened to his sons? Because his sons were unfaithful, the people wanted a king over them. Moses, Aaron, Samuel and his sons all disappointed and failed. Okay, but what about the kings? Maybe a king would come. Well, the first king looked very promising. He was the people's king. He was handsome. He was tall. On the outside, he ticked all the boxes. But remember, why did the people want a king? Because they wanted to reject God, and they wanted to be like the nations around them. So God gave them a king according to their pleasure and their heart. So God says, here's a king. He's going to be outwardly beautiful, but he's going to have some serious character flaws. And we see that happening, right? He disobeys God at crucial moments and God rejects him as king. But then he chooses a king after his own heart. This king was not chosen based on outward appearance, but based on what his character was before God. And so 1 Samuel 16, turn there with me. 1 Samuel 16 verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. The Lord provides for himself a king. This is my king. This is the one I'm choosing. And this king was David. Here comes David. He killed Goliath, delivered God's people from the giant and the Philistines and Battle after battle he wins so that the, the woman sings, Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Under immense pressure, David was a man who remained true to God. He could have easily taken vengeance in his own hands by killing Saul, and instead he entrusts vengeance to God and says, I will not lay my hand on you, Saul. Surely David is the one, right? Surely he didn't fall in any great or big sin that you know of. But alas, no. What sin or sins did David do? He was also not just a man after God's own heart. He was also a man known for going on a serious sinning spree. Adultery, lying, deceit, murdering of one of his own mighty men, and then covering it all up by marrying that very wife of the man he murdered. So no, not David. But then God makes a promise that from David, a king will come whose kingdom will last forever. Turn with me to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7 verse 12 to 16. The Lord says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall come, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So not David, but then his son, Solomon, comes. Again, here is a man who didn't want money or the death of his enemies. He just wanted wisdom to be able to do his work well for God's people. He built the temple. He was, in his kingdom, there was a time of peace. He was the son spoken of in these very verses. He was Solomon who was the richest and wisest man alive. God was with him and so he succeeded. So we read in 1 Kings 9 verse 1, 1 Kings 9 verse 1, these hopeful words. And David said, is, oh, sorry, I'm in 2 Samuel, 1 Kings 9, 1 Kings 9 verse, 11, oh, verse 1. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord in the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I've consecrated this house and that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you, keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So if Solomon would just obey, if he would just keep the law of God, if he would not worship other gods, his throne, his kingdom will be established forever. Thankfully, he was a man who never worshipped other gods. Oh, wait. Two chapters later, 1 Kings 11, what do we read in verse 1? Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they, shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wife turned away his heart after other gods, And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after the Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom and the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Again, what a disappointment. Not Solomon. And it just all goes downhill from there. Even in the best of prophets, priests, and kings, there was moral decay. There was moral failure. The decay of, of their sinful nature was always bleeding through their lives somehow, somewhere. Like the saying goes, the best of men are men at best. We need, we need a prophet who will lead us in all the truth. We need a priest who will be able to remove our sins from us once and for all and who never dies. We need a king who has the power to conquer our enemies and bring in an eternal kingdom that will last forever. But what man is like this? What man could possibly fulfill all of these prophecies, all of these expectations of who is worthy, who can conquer the devil, who can free us from our sins and every failure we have? Who is worthy? 
only one man. Into this thick darkness, into the sinful, corrupt, decaying world, finally there is born the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Galatians 4 verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The phrase, fullness of time, you must pick that up. So remember, these are now thousands of years after Adam and Eve. Thousands of years of constant disappointment, constant waiting, constant not him, not him, not him, not him. Where? When? The fullness of time, God sends forth his son. The perfect exact millisecond, Christ is born. After thousands of years of constant, unrelenting sorrow, disappointment, sin and death, only after every prophet, every priest and king has failed, came the perfect prophet, priest and king, who never failed once. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. From childhood up until the day he died, he lived a life of unbroken obedience, unbroken love. Never once did he have an unclean thought, a selfish motive, a sinful word. Not even once. Here is the man that when he was born, angels sang his glory. Here is the king who is called the Prince of Peace. Here is the man who will finally crush the head of the serpent. And I want you to picture this with me. See the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who is one with the Father in his essence. See him enthroned in glory with myriad of angels around him, around his throne, singing night and day, holy, holy, holy. And then see this king climb off his throne, enter the womb of a poor woman. Without losing anything of his deity, he added to himself a second nature, humanity. But instead of being born in a palace, he's born in a stable, in a manger, in order to save his people from their sins. But the way he did that was so shocking, so surprising. He was born to die. He was born to lay down his precious, precious life of holiness. His crown is a crown of thorns. His throne was a cross. His hands of love and holiness was nailed to a tree on which he willingly climbed to save us. He was despised and rejected by men and God. He had no beauty or majesty that we should desire him. He was the second Adam who obeyed where Adam failed, but his obedience wasn't in a garden, it was in a wilderness. He obeyed in the wilderness. But more than that, he also paid the penalty for what Adam did wrong. He paid for the sins of his people. This man would ironically disappoint his own disciples in a, in, a, in a shocking way. Everyone thought he was the Messiah, but how can the Messiah be cursed by God, hanged on a tree? That's blasphemy. That's a stumbling block for the Jews. The Messiah cannot die like that. And this disappointment that people felt is well reflected in Luke 24. This is the last passage we'll turn to. Verse 
Turn with me to Luke 24. The disciples on the road to Emmaus. I love this passage. Luke 24 from verse 13. Luke 24, 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, um, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered them, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? I love that. <laughs> what things? Please tell me. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that, they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not find. Do you see, they thought like, they thought like uh, he was supposed to be the one to redeem Israel, but he died. But this was only a perceived disappointment. Because I love how Jesus responds to them. Listen to his response in verse 25 to 27. And he said to them, Oh foolish, oh foolish ones, house and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And listen to this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They missed the entire point of the Bible, the entire story of the Old Testament. It was necessary for him to die in order to redeem his people. But he is risen from the dead, never to die again. He is the prophet who perfectly fulfilled every prophecy about him and who perfectly revealed the Father to us. He is the priest who did not bring a sacrifice of animals, but brought his own blood as a sacrifice once for all. And never to die again, he's seated at the right hand of the Father that we can go to him and all our sins be forgiven once for all. He is our king who, had, who has all authority to forgive our sins, to save us to the uttermost, who works all things together for our good, and who will one day put every enemy under his feet, even death itself. Beloved, there is the man in whom you should put your hope. Don't be surprised when people disappoint you. You were never meant to put your hope in those people. Our hope must be in the one who cannot disappoint us, who is the eternal son, the faithful one. No one who calls on his name shall ever be put to shame. That's the promise. So allow me to close of just three applications, one for each of his offices. So first, think of him as a prophet, as our perfect prophet, 
listen to him. Listen to him. That's the words the father said at his baptism and at the transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. To listen to his words is life itself. To obey him is the wisest thing you can do. Like a wise man building his house on the rock is your life building it on the words of Christ. Can never fail you. It will sustain you in the thick and the thin. On judgment day, it will sustain you. You can bank your eternal soul on the words of Christ that whoever believes in him shall never perish. As our priest, stop your vain attempt to save yourself. You cannot do that. You are too wicked. You are too sinful. Your failures are too often. You are unable to save yourself from the wrath of God that is to come. So flee from the wrath of God and flee to Christ. Turn to Christ. The holiness of God will consume you in a moment. But there is our high priest, our advocate, who is the propitiation for our sins, who satisfied the wrath of God, the perfect Lamb of God. Put your trust in him. Rest in him. Look to him. The Bible uses every syntag. I just forgot the word in English. Every faculty of your feelings and your listening. Right? He's the bread of life. Eat him. He's the man who was raised. Look to him. His words are life. Listen to him. Appropriate him. Take him. Receive him as your very own. And the moment you do that, you can be assured like the thief on the cross. The moment you look to him, even today, if you would die today, you will be with him in paradise. Lastly, as our king, as our almighty king, look to him for every need you have. Every need you have. There's nothing too difficult for him. Don't be anxious about your future, about 2024, when he is for you. When he is the king that has promised to work all things together for your good. Learn to cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Learn that. Learn to commit all things by prayer into his hands. Learn to fear him because he has the authority not just to save but to judge. Be ready for his second coming. I wonder how many of us have wondered and felt like, but is he coming again? Because look at the world, it's just going on as it has always been going on. Beloved, that feeling is not new. That's how God's people felt throughout the Old Testament. 400 years in slavery. 400 years after Malachi and John the Baptist. Of silence, God not speaking a word. Where is he? But just as the first coming was perfect, in the fullness of time, so his second coming will be in the perfect moment. This king is coming, and then he's not coming as our savior, but as a judge. So if you're not found in him, you should be scared. But if you are in him, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You don't have to fear judgment day if you're in him, because his righteousness is your righteousness. Let us worship the sovereign king immortal, invisible, who became visible, who became man. Let us this Christmas turn our eyes to our perfect prophet, priest, and king who can never disappoint you. Amen. Let's pray together.
O oh Lord, only you know the thoughts of our minds and the thoughts of our hearts. Only you know the deepest disappointments we have, our deepest sins and failures. But Lord, also, only you are the one that can save us and be our hope, be our steadfastness, the one on whom we can fall and trust. Oh, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes at this very moment to see the beauty of your Son, the glory of Christ, his value, his holiness, his worthiness, our prophet, our priest, our king, who has come to be the one to save us. Well, may we not put our hope in anything in this created world or in any person, but may we put our hope in you. Lord, as we draw this year to a close, may we lay down our sins before your throne and before the cross. And as we look forward to 2024, may we follow Christ, obey him no matter what other people say and think, that we would follow him as his disciples. Thank you that you keep us, that you are stronger than our failures, and that you will help us, Lord. We thank you for this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.